Well, hey, good morning. Uh, glad that you made it. Maybe you're a little wet, but you're here, and I'm very thankful. And so hopefully you've had a good summer so far. Again, if we haven't had the chance to meet yet, my name is John. I'm the pastor here at the Center Church, and uh, I'm just excited for the series we're in. I'm excited for the season we're about to be, and I'm excited that you're a part of that season uh, just by your presence today. I don't know why this is. I found this true about life and many of you who are older than me or more wise than me have already picked this up, that there are some things in life that are just difficult. There's some things in life that even though they're good for you, just seem to be hard. I don't know why that is. Like when I was growing even up in high school, I was curious, why do all the foods that I wanna eat actually make my body worse and not better? Like, why is that? Why do broccoli and, and collard greens and Brussels sprouts, why are those the things that are good for me instead of like ice cream, Twinkies, Burger King, etc. Does anyone else feel that? Am I the only one? Okay, just making sure we're on the same page. I don't get why it's so difficult to eat healthy. The same thing is true of physical exercise. Like, why is it that the 10 minute drive to my gym feels like an eternity? Like, I just don't have time today, but I can definitely watch Netflix for another hour. Like I've been there, I've done that. I've said those exact words. I just, I just don't have time to go. And whether it's a habit like physical exercise or practice like healthy eating, uh, disclaimer, today's lunch will not maybe fall into the healthy eating category, but you're invited regardless. So I just wanted to say that really early on. Uh, but as I think through some of those things, I think some of the most important things that we do are the most difficult. And that's true spiritually, that's true physically, it's true even relationally. Some of the most difficult but most fruitful things you will do tend to kind of push against what feels comfortable and easy to you. And I wanna speak to the, the disciples in the room, the followers of Jesus in the room. If you are not a follower of Jesus, I am very thankful that you're here. Feel free, this is safe to ask questions, to explore Christianity, whatever kind of stage you're in. But, but if you're a disciple of Jesus in the room, you say, yeah, I followed him and I've surrendered my life to him. I wanna propose to you something that you already probably feel, is that it's more difficult than ever to follow, to surrender, to obey Jesus in this cultural moment than it ever has been. There are so many forces working against what feels like the right things. And there's so many things in our culture that not only are they polarizing, but they're just downright confusing, right? You just, you could scroll through Facebook and find 20 different opinions about the same issue. And our filters aren't as good at discerning what is true and what do I actually need to follow through on? What do we actually need to obey? And there's so many walls. We talked about this last week and if you're watching online or you do watch online, you can go back and catch that on our website or on social media. But last week we talked about the fact that there's so many walls torn down. And when it comes to obeying Jesus and following him in this cultural moment, in our day and age, there are just a lot of things that make it more difficult. I mean, for one, the, the rates of people that distrust organizations like the church is higher than ever before. People are less prone to kind of buy church or religion at face value. There's a lot of questions. There's the shame of our past that gets in the way of, obe of obeying Jesus. The things that we wrestle with and you're like, yeah, I know that's kind of God's best for me, his will for me, but there's so many things in my past I just... I don't think I'm ever gonna get there, that place of full and total obedience. There's embarrassment of if I share that online or if I have that kind of conversation about faith in my work or at school or even in my own home, what are people gonna think about me? 
And are they going to reject me? Are they going to kind of peg me as the Christian guy or the Christian girl in, in class or at, at the work uh, lunch table? Like, what is uh, their, their perception of me going to be? And let's just be honest, there's cultural taboos already around following Jesus really wholeheartedly in our day and age. It's harder to, to discern what is true and what do I need to follow up on? And when you have those moments of feeling, I need to obey something, but I'm not going to, or there's things in my way of doing that, it leads us to be frustrated. Some of us, it leads us to be apathetic and just stop caring. For some of us, it leads to exhaustion and being burnt out because you just try, try, try in your own power and become overwhelmed. So I wanna wrestle with the question today in the story of Nehemiah, how do we obey in our cultural moment? in the situations of life that we're in right now. And if you say, yeah, I'm a follower of Jesus in this room and, and I'm seeking to live my life the way he wants me to live it, how do we then obey him in this cultural moment and with all the things working against us as the walls are torn down in the rubble of our society, how do we begin to rebuild and how do we begin to follow? I, I love what Dallas Willard, who's a theologian, philosopher, uh, died just a few years ago, said about obedience. He writes this, Obedience is doing the thing Jesus would do if he were you. I love that. That is probably my best definition of what I mean when I say obedience because when you hear the word obedience, some of you think a mean parent, some of you think a very strict, fundamental religious background, some of you think a duty or legalism and run the opposite direction. But when I'm saying obedience throughout the morning and, and scripturally, obedience is just doing the things Jesus would do if he were you. And as we're talking about obedience, I think it's important to frame that. We talked last week in that Nehemiah had a burden, that, that there was a deep conviction, a passion in his soul to, to rebuild Jerusalem, but more than that, to see God's promise, as we have sang and talked about today, be fulfilled, that the temple, the place of worship, the centering of a society around God would happen again. He wanted to be a part of that. And the reason that a guy who's a th nearly a thousand miles away, Susa to Jerusalem, was because Nehemiah had a burden, a conviction that things were not right and, and God was gonna use him to be a part of that. Um, earlier in the chapter, we're gonna be in chapter four. So if you have a Bible or device or uh, some other thing, I don't even know what the third option is, a, a scroll, pull out your scrolls and turn to Nehemiah four, I guess. Uh, Nehemiah four, we're gonna look in verse one. But I wanna highlight something that happens in chapter two and three. There's a phrase that pops up in Nehemiah. He writes this, I set out during the night with a few others. I had not told anyone what my God had put in my heart to do for Jerusalem. I think that kind of frames the rest of the story. It, it hits on burden, what God had put in my heart, what God had put in me, to do. There's an action, burden plus obedience. Normally, when you have a burden for something and there's conviction and passion, and you actually follow through on the conviction and passion, that's God's will for you. Some of you, the biggest question you ask about your faith is, I just wish I knew what God wanted me to do. Well, look at your life. Where's the burden? We talked about it last week. And where do you need to obey? And when those things meet, when they collide, that's God's will for you. Now, I want to jump into chapter four. And to look at what happens as Nehemiah kind of undertakes this massive building project. Jerusalem is a big city. Some of you maybe have been there or want to go there someday. Jerusalem is a large city with many different pieces to it. Geographically, very unique. But the, the city wall that they were trying to rebuild was around a mile and a half long. 
Now that is a big wall. That's a big project. And, and even as you go to Jerusalem this day, you see remnants of that existing wall uh, that they put up during this rebuilding project, but it didn't come without a cost. In verse one, let's pick up in the story. When Sanballat heard that we were rebuilding the wall, he became angry and was greatly incensed. That's aggravated or frustrated. He ridiculed the Jews and in the presence of his associates in the army of Samaria, he said, what are those feeble Jews doing? Will they restore their wall? Will they offer sacrifice? Will they finish in a day? Can they bring the stones back to life from those heaps of rubble burned as they are? Tobiah the Ammonite who was at his side said, what are they building? Even a fox climbing up on it would break down their walls of stones. Now this is an idiom used in modern, in ancient Israel, ancient Jerusalem specifically, uh, for something that was kind of impossible. Something that was gonna be knocked down easily. Like you set that up, but yeah, I could come over and kick it over, no problem. It's easier to destroy than to rebuild, right? You've played Legos before, you understand that. And so uh, this idiom, and again, if you've been living under a rock and don't know what a fox is, a fox is a small animal and they're very light. They're very quick on their feet. If you've hunted or seen them out in the wild, they, they can move quickly because they're so light-footed. So the idiom here is saying, you could rebuild this mile and a half wall, but it's so unlikely that you're gonna be successful, a little fox could just walk and knock the whole thing down. That's kind of what saying, it's, it's a pretty bad joke in our modern day. Just thought I would point it out to you if you wanna use it in the future. Verse four, hear us, our God, for we are despised. Now this is Nehemiah responding. Turn their insults back on their own heads. I've said that to some people before. Give them over as plunder in a land of captivity. Do not cover up their guilt or blot out their sins from your sight. For they've thrown insults in the face of the builders. Verse six, so we rebuilt the wall till all of it reached half its height. This is again, a mile and a half long project. It reached half the height for the people worked with all of their heart. I wanna share kind of three truths, three realities when it comes to obedience today uh, from Nehemiah's story, but also as we see throughout the scripture story, what's true. Because for many of us, uh, not only do we mis misunderstand the nature of obedience, but we bump up against these three, three realities. And for many of us, we just step back and, and stop. Or, or we kind of default to living life the way we always have, but, but God has more. And the first reality or truth I wanna share with you, and you see it in verse one to six, is that obedience will look foolish. Have you ever followed through on something spiritually that in your head made no logical sense? Uh, giving is one of them. <laughs> the fact that people in a church would give back to God when everyone else is, is controlling their finances is, is kind of a foolish thing when you really think about it in context of our culture, in our moment right now. It just doesn't necessarily Makes sense. Obedience will look foolish. And here's why I think that is. All of you feel this, but maybe we haven't expressed it this way, is that when you were a kid, obedience was a loss of freedom. Think about that. It was a loss of independence in a way that when my dad told me to go mow the yard, he was saying no to a thousand other things I would rather do than mow the yard. Uh, Super Nintendo being one of them, playing sports in the backyard with my brothers, uh, getting a suntan. I don't know, like you just go through eating more snacks, eating Lunchables that were for the next day. Like you go through those different things and it felt like a loss of freedom. And even when it comes to following Jesus, let's be real honest, there's moments where following him feels like we're losing our independence and losing our freedom. And in America, independence and freedom are a high value and rightfully so. 
But when it comes to following Jesus, we buck up against that reality that obedience looks foolish because we feel like it's a loss of freedom. And, and freedom to us in our cultural day, in our, in our age, is really being true to yourself. I've said that before. I don't know if you've ever said that before, but the quest for kind of independent self-satisfaction, fulfilling what the kind of picture in my head of what a real me looks like. And we do all sorts of things. We go to counseling, we get plastic surgery, we pay for new cars and new things that we can't afford just so that we can kind of prop up the image of what the real John is supposed to look like. And we kind of attach Jesus to those things and it gets really messy. See, I'm standing before you right now as a five foot 11, I'm just kidding, I'm closer to five seven. Uh, if I just was seeing if you caught that, I don't know. You guys are like, oh yeah, he's definitely five eleven. he looks tall, uh, hundred pounds, no, I'm just kidding. So as a person who, there's a lot of different pieces of me, and some, many of you know me and I've shared some of these things, but there's all sorts of identities that I get trapped into or can just drift into thinking about are the real me. And you probably have stuff like this as well. Uh, it's a person that eats more plants and fruits than he does meat. How about that? That would be one I could attach to. And there's some extreme weirdos who would identify with that exact same diet. Am I right? Yes, I'm right, okay? And I'm, and I'm one of them in some way. But So I could attach my identity to that. Or I could say, well, well I'm a runner, so I'm gonna, gonna go full into the running community. I'm gonna run just nonstop. It's all I'm gonna talk about any conversation I'm gonna bring up accolades or races I'm doing or whatever, some of you are like, that's kind of what you do. And so you can call me out next time. How about that? Now we're even. But I could attach myself to that. I could attach myself to the fact that I wear glasses, that I'm a pastor, that I'm a Boston Celtics fan, that I, you could just go through all of these different identities and some of us just attach ourselves to those and that becomes who we are. I am defined by the, the club I'm a part of. I'm defined by the job I work. I'm defined by the team that I like. I'm defined by the kinds of foods I eat or don't eat. And, and rather than obeying for, for the reasons that we should, we attach ourselves to those under other identities. You know what's true in scripture? That when you obey Jesus, when you follow him with your whole self, you become who you really are. You become who you are meant to be. There's something internal that just clicks back into alignment that you can't find on your own. I can't find that as a, as a, as a weird eating, running, glasses wearing pastor who likes the Boston Celtics. Like I can't find my true self in that. I find myself in laying all of those identities aside and taking up who God has intended me to be. And obedience clicks that into gear. Some of you who have followed Jesus and are much more mature in your faith than me, you already know that is that you've become more of who God wants you to be. And it's not a loss of freedom. And our world would look at that and say, yeah, but that's not really you. You're just following a religion. But you know that as you obey, you become more of who you really are supposed to be. Let's keep reading the story. Verse seven, as you keep moving into scriptures, the story gets better and it gets a little bit more intense. When Sambalot, this is verse seven, Tobiah, the Arabs, Ammonites, aka a lot of people, people of Ashdod heard that the repairs to Jerusalem's walls had gone ahead. The gaps were being closed. They were very angry. They all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and stir up trouble against it. But we prayed to our God. Remember chapter one, what Nehemiah, not what Nehemiah does in response to the broken wall? He prays. He keeps that pattern again and again. Meanwhile, 
people in Judah said, the strength of the laborers is giving out. And there's so much rubble. We can't rebuild the wall. The doubt started to creep in. Verse 11, also our enemy said, before they know it or see us, we'll be right there among them and we'll kill them and put the end to the work. We'll put an end to all this rebuilding project that Nehemiah had undertaken. Verse 12, then the Jews who lived near them came and told us 10 times over, whenever, wherever you turn, they will attack us. Not a lot of confidence being displayed here in the Jewish rebuilding project. The construction workers are starting to put the DeWalt's away and they're like, yeah, this is not working out. I don't know if I wanna keep doing this. And 10 different times they repeat that. They, they're gonna attack us, they're coming after us. Verse 13, this is what Nehemiah does. Therefore I stationed some of the people behind the lowest points of the wall at the exposed places, posting them by families with their sword, spears, and bows. After I looked things over, I stood up and said to the nobles, the officials, and the rest of the people, hear this, don't be afraid of them. Remember the Lord, who is great and awesome, and fight for your families, your sons and your daughters, your wives and homes. When our enemies heard that we were aware of their plot and that God had frustrated it, we all returned to the wall, each to our own work. Back to business as usual. Don't be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome. Some of you in your lives right now just need to hear that again. The Lord you serve is great and he's awesome. No one can thwart his plan. No one is stronger than the God that you serve. No one is greater than the one who is in you, the Holy Spirit that's giving you power to live a different life because you, much like me, face opposition. Obedience will face opposition. If you're really obeying, you're gonna have things that come up in your life. And this attack plan was hatched. It moved from just being insults to being a murder plot. And that's a big jump. We don't know how much time passed, but in this story, it feels pretty quick. Like someone goes from sarcastically making fun of them, throwing around jokes and insults and jeers to, hey, let's plan to kill this entire construction crew. Like it gets incredibly serious and obedience, when you obey on a deep level, you will face opposition. In our culture, whenever something gets hard or we get opposed about something, we just quit. I do the exact same thing, right? And you probably had stuff like this. When, whenever a habit, Whenever a, a workout routine, whenever a financial kind of pattern or, or something I know is really good for me to do, when that gets hard, often I just back off. I'm like, well, if it's hard, it's probably not meant for me to actually do it, <laughs> right? Or something spiritually, yeah, but I mean, temptation's easier to give into. So I feel like I should just keep doing that instead of actually fighting against the temptations in my life or, or submitting those temptations to Christ. And, and our culture almost rewards this, right? And in some ways we get trapped into this as well. Uh, I was literally sitting at a drive-through two weeks ago and going through the minutes in my head. Have you ever done this? Like I had somewhere to go and I'm like 60, 59, 58, 57. Like I know that the, the run time supposed to be like two and a half minutes. So I can at least wait till 120 or so seconds, but it became 10 minutes, which became 15 minutes. And I, I was in that perfect spot where you've got a car behind you and a car in front of you and I couldn't go anywhere. Like I started to think through, what if I just backed around this curb and just got out and then went home? Like, I'm kind of glad that in 10 years, drive-throughs will probably be obsolete. 
Like with all of the apps and services we now have, like I don't have to necessarily think I'm gonna wait forever. I, I like that. My health does not. I personally do. Like I'm excited about that possibility. But if you're not fully obeying God, you won't face any opposition. Like if your life is not fully oriented, like if mine is not, our life is gonna feel somewhat easy and carefree. And some of us, when it comes to our own spiritual lives, have coasted for far too long. Like life right now just feels very easy. And when it comes to our spiritual lives, it just feels like, yeah, I've got like the box, I check it off, but my life may not look as fully obedient as a guy like Nehemiah. And if you're really obeying God, you're gonna experience some of that opposition. You're gonna have stuff that just comes up. You're like, where? I didn't know where that came from. Or my kid didn't act that way before. Or I didn't have that chronic illness. I, I didn't have, like you could go through the list of things and look over your life and say, oh, that's because I'm doing what God wants. And there's an enemy who actively is working against me to make sure that that doesn't happen. That's kind of the nature of obedience. Obedience, if you're truly doing it, you will face opposition. A couple weeks ago, uh, I had the privilege to baptize a, a woman named Lexi, who's a part of our church, and many of you know her, and uh, the story's kind of unique, and I asked her permission to share this, but uh, a couple months ago, actually, like February, March, she came up to me after service and said, hey, I, I heard you talking about baptism. I think my next step is to be baptized, which as a pastor, I'm like, great, let's do it. What, you got time right now? And she's like, no, 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 I want to wait. I want to have a conversation with you about it and just process. I think this is what God's leading me towards. I'm not sure. Let's, let's talk about it. So we talked about it. And throughout the course of the couple months, we said, hey, here's the date. We're going to schedule this. And uh, literally the night before that day, she said, hey, I can't do it. Something came up, personal thing. I can't do it. And in my head, my, I should say my heart, my heart just sunk. As a pastor, I'm like, that's one of the most exciting things. And knowing that wasn't going to happen, I was like, no, God, I just, I don't understand what you're doing. So the next week rolls around. And I said, hey, we want to make this happen for you. I want to help you take this step. How, how are we going to do it? So we, we, again, kind of schemed and strategized. And she works many Sundays. So she said, well, here's a Sunday I could do. I said, boom, let's do it. We're going to baptize you on that day day before. She's like, hey, my manager just said, I'm scheduled to work. And if I don't work, I'm at risk of losing my job. I was like, crap. <laughs> like that was my spiritual response in that moment. I literally got the text like, crap, that was really, I don't like that at all. Like that was not at all what I had planned. And so again, I kind of thought through, okay, like, do we move the day? What do we do? And, and her and I, I felt like we're in the middle of kind of a spiritual battle, if you will. It felt like there was a step that she was trying to be obedient to God and there was opposition after opposition after opposition. And so we got creative. We baptized her before the service. She went to her work with wet hair from being baptized like a couple minutes ago. And I just think it's so great. But what her story reveals to me is that obedience will face opposition. She was taking a step and obeying the call of God on her life. And there was active forces against her along the way that did not stop her. And I really, really admire that. I hope that you sense that as well. Like there, there are maybe even some of you who are in the room, maybe it's baptism or something else. You know, there's spiritual next steps, but there's so many obstacles. It feels like I can't, I can't do it or 
I'm going to be overwhelmed. I don't know what's going to happen if I do. And, and the chances are, as you keep obeying Christ and you keep your life in that consistent alignment with him, you're going to face more and more opposition. I know that's not a nice message to hear, but Jesus promises that in this world, you will have trouble, but take heart of overcome the world. Greatest hope that we have when it comes to obedience. Let's keep moving in the story and I wanna share one final thought. From that day on, verse 16, half my men did the work. That sounds like Michigan construction crews. <laughs> Sorry, sorry, that was mean, bad, that was bad. Uh, shots fired. Half of the men did the work while the other half were equipped. See, they were doing something. With spears, shields, bows, and armor, the officers posted themselves behind all the people of Judah who were building the wall. Those who carried materials did the work with one hand and held a weapon in the other. And each of the builders wore a sword at his side as he worked, but the man who sounded the trumpet stayed with me. Then I said to the nobles, officials, rest of the people, the work is extensive. People building it are like, no, duh, the work is extensive. This is a mile and a half long project. This is gonna take possibly years. The work is extensive and spread out. And we are widely separated from each other along the wall. They're worried, like anybody else, that invading armies, we listed a ton of them earlier, are gonna come in and take them out, just kind of pick them off because this wall was so extensive. Verse 20, Whenever, wherever you hear the sound of the trumpet, join us there. Our God will fight for us. Our God will fight for us. That's kind of the third true, third reality of obedience. Obedience will require his power. Obedience will require God's power. It will require the spirit at work in you because here's the reality. You and I can't obey all that Jesus wants us to do, the kind of person he wants us to become without him. That's just how we're wired. Some of us have tried that and for years been in this vicious religious cycle of trying to do all the nice things a Christian does without the power that a Christian needs. And that has to stop. You just, you can't live life that way. Some of you are exhausted and burnt out because that's the default way that you think about faith. And, and I've been there, I've thought about my faith as something I do, something I earn, something I lead. And I've always had it backwards because what obe obedience requires is God's power. What Nehemiah understood is that he could set up all of the sentries, all of the walls, all the protections, all the swords in the world but without God fighting for them, they would still lose. And without God's power, they would never fully rebuild that wall. I love how the New Living Translation puts verse 10 in this passage. Simply writes, we are tired, there's so much rubble, and we can't rebuild it ourselves. I've got a good betting chance that you've been there before, that your life has felt like there's so much rubble. I'm tired and I cannot rebuild it myself. And I think when Jesus looks upon someone who says that, he thinks perfect. Because until you are desperate enough to seek him and experience his power, your life really will not change. You may do some incremental improvements. You may become a little bit nicer. Maybe you will be a better citizen or, or be a nicer neighbor. You'll be nice, but that doesn't necessarily mean you'll be obedient to all that Jesus wants you to do, the kind of person he wants you to become. That requires him. Uh, again, I think one of the ways that this actually happens is starting with recognizing your place in God's family, your, your place as identity, with an identity in him. 
this is uh, gonna sound mean at first, but my first three years of vocational ministry, I came fresh out of college and the one thing I could do was play guitar and sing. And so I got hired full-time at a church to basically play guitar and sing. They didn't let me touch much else. They were just like, how about you just stay doing that? Like, you're, I don't know if you're really qualified to do anything else. So, so I stayed doing that. And here at Center, we are incredibly blessed, incredible team, amazing musicians, great leadership. Uh, but I wasn't necessarily the best. And so there was a lot of times where our team would suggest like a song or an idea and, and begrudgingly sometimes I would do them because I wasn't a very team playing leader. I was like, yeah, okay. Like if they ask me enough, I'll do it. And one of the songs that I just became so sick of and started to really hate uh, was the song, No Longer Slaves. Yeah, so the, 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 you'll see why that's funny later on. But uh, I started, because we're gonna sing in like five minutes, but uh, all that to say, I started to despise this song. Now, now, don't turn into the critical version of yourself and say, yeah, there's a couple songs I hate too. Don't, we're not gonna share those in this setting. That's, you can email Brendan anytime. Um, you can share all that with him and he'll be very gracious more than I was. But our, our team had shared like 10 times in a row. Like we'd have these meetings and they were like, Man, that song, No Longer Slaves, John, we gotta do it, it's so good. And, and finally, I just, they whittled me down. I was like, okay, we're gonna sing this dang song, okay? We're gonna sing it. I'm not leading it though, I'm just gonna play it, okay? So we, we get to the Sunday, we're gonna play that song. And, and I had operated, when it comes to obedience, on my own, completely. Even as a pastor, I just was like, I can figure this out, I can do it. The spiritual life I'm trying to create, that, that's something that I do and had completely left God and His power and His Holy Spirit out of the equation. And we started singing that song and something switched because the song is so incredibly simple. It just says, I'm no longer a slave to fear, I'm a child of God. And in my cynical mind, I thought, are you serious? A group of professional songwriters got together and that's what they came up with? <laughs> I'm no longer a slave to fear, I'm a child. Like, that's it? And something switched in me. I wasn't singing the song at the time. I'd led other songs that had impacted me, but I wasn't singing, I was just playing and someone else was leading out. And I was like, why is this so important? And I think about Nehemiah's story and something switched in that moment for me. I realized I'd come to the end of myself and that obedience required God's power. I really couldn't be the kind of person he wants me to be without him. I came to that place and said, you know what? The most fundamental truth of all of scripture is wrapped up in that song. I'm no longer slave to fear, to the sin, the temptation, the brokenness in my life, the things that keep me away from God. I'm a child of God. I'm made alive in him. My identity's rooted in him. And that makes an incredible difference because when you obey out of fear, it lasts about two seconds and there's no joy in it, there's no life in it. When you obey as a child who knows you're loved by God, your father, you obey different. You live different. You start to think about stuff different because you know where your identity is. And I would challenge you today, maybe you're looking for a next step, maybe you're trying to process, okay, what do I do with that? If, if our culture's fighting against my obedience to Jesus and it, it's gonna look foolish, it's gonna have opposition, it's gonna require God's power, I would simply challenge you, maybe you do it in the quietness of this moment, God's already working in your heart. I know he's speaking to some of you right now, maybe that's already happening, but maybe 
there's some time you just carve out during the week or there's times where you're in the car on the way to work alone. You can just process this question, but here's a question that if you wanna write it down for reflection, I encourage you. Ask this question, where does the Holy Spirit wanna help me obey? Now I could have phrased that question a lot of different ways. I could have phrased it, where should you be obeying? Or where are you living in disobedience? But I don't think that's the spirit and nature of Nehemiah's understanding of obedience as well as the scripture's understanding of obedience. Jesus, the Holy Spirit, the God the Father wants to help you obey really because it's the best way for you to live. It's the best place to find freedom, to find who you really are is wrapped up in whether or not you and I will lay down our lives to sacrifice what we think is right, to truly obey him, to sing a song like no longer slaves and realize, yeah, that is the most important thing. I'm a child of God. I don't have to fear. I don't have to live in the brokenness and sin patterns of my life. I can be free. And it's in that obedience we find ourselves. Ask that question, where does the spirit wanna help me obey? In Ephesians 6, Paul talks about the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. That's how you wage war in your life. Is, is recognizing that the Spirit is wanting to help you to obey. And here's the scary truth of this message. Here's the scary truth of Nehemiah's story, is that if you try to obey in your own power or you quit because it's foolish or you quit because there's some opposition or some pushback against your obedience, you and I will live a powerless, burnt out, fatigued, stressed, anxiety-ridden, pain-filled life because we weren't designed to live that way. Instead, we're designed to live a life and this is Jesus' hope for you that is full, it's abundant, it's in rhythm with the Holy Spirit and will give you power to obey when you feel like you can't obey, to take the next step when you feel like you can't take that step, to parent and to, and to lead a business and to process decisions the way that other people just don't factor in. The way that people are like, that doesn't make sense. Why are you doing that? Or, or why are you thinking about it this way? Or, or your marriage is hard, you should just get a different one. Like, when you process through those real life decisions and obedience, you will see how much being a child of God and having the Holy Spirit behind you makes an incredible difference. A sword in the hand and a hammer in the other. That's how you and I obey in our moment. Can I pray for you? Let's bow our heads and let's pray together. Jesus, I thank you that, that you don't just ask us to obey you. You don't just ask us to kind of live this spiritually elite life without your power behind it. I thank you that you both give us the desire and the power to do everything you ask us to do. And God, I know that there's people in this room that you are pressing on their heart a burden. And I know that there's other people in this room that you've pressed on their heart a burden and they have yet to take a step of faith. They've yet to live out of that conviction. They've yet to match that burden with real time obedience. And I pray that today you would encourage them, that you challenge them, that you convict them. You convict me of areas in which I have a burden, but I've not lived that out and I've not acted on it. And I thank you that the hope is that because we are children of God, we have nothing to fear. Because we're children of God, we can say like Nehemiah said, our God will fight for us. God, would you fight for some of us today? Would you help us to surrender the most difficult, tension-filled, awkward, anxiety-filled moments right now and help us to fully trust in you? We've seen your faithfulness. 
but we wanna taste it today. We wanna experience it fresh today. So I pray that you do that work in us as a church. And through that, God, that you'd help us to rebuild the broken walls of our culture, of our families, of our community, that we'd make a dent in seeing zero lives unchanged because you've really changed us. So we love you and commit this moment to you. We commit our own lives fresh to you today. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. I'm gonna invite you to stay.